0: Psalm 73, it's a psalm of a believer who doubted and came to be supported by the Lord in his faith. It's about a believer who struggled with whether God is good and good to him. He struggled with the evil of injustice that he saw, and yet also the evil of his own heart's envy of the prosperity of the unjust. And so I want you to consider that subject tonight. Do you believe that God is good and good to you? And how does it shape you? Let me invite you to consider that. Psalm 73. Hear now the word of God. A psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are, feet, are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus I would have betrayed the generation of your children but when I thought how to understand this it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end truly you set them in slippery places you make them fall in ruin how they are destroyed in a moment Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts, that we would know the hope to which you have called us and what are the riches of of your inheritance in the saints and what is your surpassing power for us who believe. Oh, teach us your word. Exalt Jesus our Savior. Keep us from error. Restrain us from foolishness. For your glory and our good, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you really believe that God is good and good to you, even in light of injustice? That's that's his struggle here. People who don't give a rip about God, is what he's saying, are doing quite well, thank you very much. And they think he's a fool for believing and so he struggles. Is God really good? And is God really good to me? Others are doing well, he says, and I'm not, and I want what they've got. He's envious. And so I want you to consider this, this manifold problem. It's, it's not just the problem of the prosperity of, of the unjust, but it's also the problem of the envy of the heart of the one who longs. To live in their ways. So, what do we do with all of this? I want you to think about three things tonight. I want you to think about this how Christians can own the problem of the evil of injustice. We can own that problem. Secondly, I want you to think about this how Christians can be honest about the problem of the evil of our envy. And thirdly, I want you to consider how Christians get help in our struggle, by being reoriented in worship. Now, all three things are in the past, in the text before us. And it's a long psalm, but I want you to ponder through it with me as best we can. In the first place, Christians can own the problem of the evil of injustice. Truly God is good to Israel, he says at the beginning, verse 1, to those who are impure, pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled when... For I was envious of the arrogant, he says. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How do you answer the problem of evil in this world? How do, you, how do you answer that? You know, there's different answers out there. Many people will use the problem of evil as a reason for unbelief. They'll say this: if God is good, why is there evil? Or if God is All-powerful and good, why is there evil? The the pagan philosopher will put it this way. If if God is all-powerful, then the existence of evil must be because he isn't good. Or if he's good, then the existence of evil must be because he isn't all-powerful and can't get rid of it. Couldn't stop it from happening. That's the logic, you understand, of unbelief. What's interesting about this is that the question of the existence of evil is a uniquely theistic question. It's actually uniquely a question that the theist, not the atheist, has to wrestle with. And by the way, if if you're not a Christian here tonight, but you're here, if you're an atheist here tonight, we're delighted that you're here. I'm thankful that you're here, and I hope that you'll feel like we're taking your questions and struggles about Christianity, that we're taking those seriously. But listen, it's a question ultimately, that within the worldview of atheism doesn't have a legitimate place. If God doesn't exist, then the question of what is God like doesn't matter. And what does God permit? That question doesn't matter. But more than that, if God doesn't exist and isn't good, then evil doesn't exist as a category Listen, if there is not an ultimate standard of goodness, then there's no, no ultimate standard by which anything can be declared to be evil. An atheistic view of the world has no place for genuine moral concern and obligation. If there's no God, there's no reason to be angry at injustice. After all, the strong rule of the weak, right? It's natural to an evolved world. So what I'm saying is this, in order to critique Christianity, you actually have to step into Christianity to do it and embrace the idea that God really exists and that it's possible to know what's good based on the absolute standard of God and his goodness. Otherwise, you don't have evil. And so what I'm saying is this, that it's a problem we have to wrestle with. It's a problem within the world of belief, but but it's It's a problem that reminds you that we can actually say there is such a thing as evil. Not our own definition of it, but by God's standard, there is such a thing as cruelty. There is such a thing as injustice. There is such a thing as wicked harm. It exists. It's real. And so I'm saying we, we can own this problem as christians since god is good and all-powerful why is there injustice why not just in g- generically but why do i experience injustice is what the psalmist is saying here why, why do the wicked around me prosper people who get, could give a rip about god they not love him or trust him or they care less why, why do they prosper and and i don't he's saying i had a i have a friend a long time ago named roger he's Probably in his mid 60s now. When I was in college, and he was doing campus ministry, he was in his early 40s. He was a wonderful man. He's a great man of God. Had a ministry with 20 people working in with him in ministry on the campus at Miami University, serving well over 600 students. Revered in his ministry circles. Listen, he raised his children in the faith. His son grew up, went to college entered the military, and died in the Middle East? Why? That's what Roger's asking. Why us? Why me? Why my son? Why my believing family? Christians ask these questions. In fact, if you haven't asked this question, you either aren't thinking, or you're a very young and immature Christian, or you're so sheltered you haven't really experienced it, but you've got to wrestle with this and the psalmist here wrestles with it and and who is he by the way he's the leader of temple worship he's a levitical priest he's got responsibility for leading choirs in the service of worship for composing music and texts for that purpose and so this guy is to put it one way he's kind of the cream of the crop he's a leader in the believing community involved in public ministry to among god's people and And I want to say to you, look, that's just, that's beautiful that God gave us his struggle in God's word. Because it means that you can come to God in worship with all of your heartbreak. It means you can come to God in worship with all of your confusion about what is going on in this world. With all of your questions. We don't have to pretend. That's what I mean. We can own the problem of the evil of injustice but secondly christians can be honest about the problem of envy his problem is more than just it's out there his problem is it's in here i was envious of the arrogant when i saw the prosperity of the wicked is what he says why don't i have more and they have less is what he's saying Why does he envy? Look at verses 4 through 12. He runs through a list of things. He turns his heart and mind away, as it were, from the goodness of God to look at the world around him. And he says, says, well, look, look, these people, they don't get sick. Verses 4 and 5. I mean, they're fat and they're sleek. They're well-fed, well-cared for. They don't seem to struggle with illness. And they're confident about their lives. Pride is their necklace. And they have this incredible freedom. They live like there's no tomorrow, verses 7 through 10. Their their mouths wag at heaven. They even mock. And and they just just live like there will be no reckoning. They have all the material wealth that they need. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. You see, you see who he's describing? People, people who have all the friends that they want, all the power that they want, all the blessings that they could ever want, to do whatever it is they want whenever they want, and they become arrogant and proud, and they mock God. And, and he says, that isn't fair. And he says, I want that too. I'm not content with what God has given me is what he's saying. Life is hard for me and easy for them listen i just want to say that that we all ought to be careful about allowing our hearts to get cultivated in that direction we need to be aware of having a heart of envy cultivated in us one of the things that does that i'm convinced is and guilty as charged is through watching a lot of television listen people uh on uh, TV live in a world where they can ride everything out. Everything gets resolved in sixty minutes or twenty-four hours. <laughs> Worldwide terrorism stopped by one man in in a day. Right, monk solves a murder in one hour, and you never see the grief it leaves behind in the lives of the families it's destroyed. It always ends on a happy-go-lucky moment in the office mocking monk for his quirks or something but you never see the residual effects people drive great cars they their hair never gets messed up even when they're riding in a convertible they look beautiful and in the romantic dramas oh it all goes so well every time they try it and we begin to think that's what my life ought to look like money for nothing and chicks for free that's That's the motto of TV. Now you say, I've been a Christian since I was young and I was told not to envy the world. And well, I don't, frankly. Ted, this doesn't bother me a bit. I want to ask you a question. On the flip side, do you actually rejoice in the prosperity of others? You know, the Bible says weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I would submit it's far easier us For us to weep with those who weep than it is to be delighted when God gives them the perfect car, the perfect house, the perfect bank account. Are you happy when your neighbor prospers? When you're sitting at home on Friday night, maybe for good reason, but everybody else is going out on date night. Do you rejoice that they're doing that? What about your gifts? Are you content with the way God made you and the way God made others? Do you constantly find yourself saying, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that gift. I want what they have. Is is this you? Are you a coveter in your heart, deeply unsatisfied with what you perceive to be the lack of God's goodness to you? Listen, you may spend, if you're, Child growing up, college student, going home on a weekend. You you might spend a weekend with another family. And their mom and dad and siblings are great. They don't even sin in that house. Not in your presence for the short while you're there. But you come home and you know all too well your parents and siblings aren't great. And you know their sins intimately. Are you tempted to question God's sovereign providence and care of your life? Do you see, I'm sorry, sorry, we're all tempted to envy. And we all ought to be careful of allowing our hearts to be stirred in that direction. But look at the results of his envy here. In verses 21 through 22, notice how it changes him. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. What's he saying? You are what you eat. You remember Arby's five for five ninety-five? I've been there done that in a car by myself. Two Arby sandwiches, French fries, milkshake, mozzarella cheese sticks. Forget the dessert. And I've, I've taken it all down to my shame, and I am so happy for the first half hour. And then I start to feel like a mozzarella cheese stick. Oh, it's terrible, right? It begins to spoil in you. You know, they say that everything a pig eats is on the bone in 24 hours. Apparently, I guess it metabolizes in 24 hours. It becomes a part of the meat of their bones. It becomes them. They become it. That's what happens to him. He envies. And he, becomes, he begins, he says, to become like them. I became like a brute beast before God, he says. My discontentment began to define me. And I felt like an animal before God is what he's saying. I didn't have any connection with God. I wasn't happy in God. I had quenched it with resentment. You need to be careful if that's what you're feeding yourself. But it not only changes him, it makes him angry. I think there's a a note of that in in the whole psalm. But in 13 and 14, he says, you know, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. Washed my hands in innocence." You can almost hear his attitude here. Uh, To no purpose did I do that. What was the point? It seems like what he's saying is that he's he's acknowledging he's mad at God. He's bitter and resentful. Following Jesus got me nothing is what he's saying. What good did it do me? And I want to say to us that most of the time the simple reason for doubting God is self-pity. A desire for sovereignty in our own lives, to be in charge of our own lives, and a desire to have what we don't have. Envy is the beginning of a lot of downfall. C.S. Lewis, in his preface to the Screwtape Letters, says this, The real mark of hell is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. We must picture hell, he says, as a place where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance... And where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Oh, friends, it's a terrible danger. And, and, and not only does it change him and he grows angry at God, but in doing so, he warps God's character in his own mind. What is he doing? He's, he's determining God's character by his circumstances. He's deciding what God must be like by what God has done in his life. And that is always, always, always a dangerous way to define who God is. To take what's going on in your life and say, well, God must be like this because of that. Oh, friends, it is dangerous. Calvin says it this way. Affliction is generally accompanied by dejection. And dejection issues in doubt. Doubt gives rise to mental conflict, and then he says the struggle becomes intense. Have you been there, friends? We need to heed the caution and the wisdom of William Cooper in his song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He has a line in there that says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, scan God's work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. But if we don't let God's word define God's character and trust God in the face of our experiences and God's providences, then then those things will seem to contradict God's goodness and we'll reject him. We won't trust him. When we ought to doubt ourselves and trust in God, instead we'll begin to trust ourselves and to doubt God is always a danger, friends. And I want to say to you this. Let the injustice God himself experienced upon the cross when he, the author of life, was killed by the hands of wicked men and yet according to the predetermined plan of God, as Peter or Paul says in Acts chapter 2, Let the injustice God experienced on the cross in order that you might know the the loving pardon and acceptance of God. Let that teach you that God is trustworthy. Even when what's going on around here, it doesn't seem that way. And so we can own the problem of evil. We can be honest about the problem of the evil in our hearts, which is envy. But we can also get help, as he does. And we can get help by being reoriented in the context of worship. And that's where the psalm turns here. That's where he gains his new perspective. As everything goes right side up, that was upside down. You see it picked up here at verse 17. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God, he says. Then, he got a new perspective. And let's talk about these things. So he's he's in the sanctuary of God. He's he's meeting God in worship. He's drawing near to God, and God is drawing near to him in in the community of faith. And what happens there? Let me just highlight a few things. In the first place, at verse 15, I think, he begins to realize that he... He can't trust himself to have it right. And, and so at verse 15 he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And catch what he's saying. If, if I said, I will, I'll speak thus, I'll say it. I'll say what verses 1 through 14 say. Surely God isn't good to Israel. I mean, look at, look at what's going on in the world. He, he says to himself, you know, if I speak that way, I would, I would ruin others. It, 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 I could end up destroying other people. And here he's a leader in the church. And so, so he doesn't say it until he's gained a new perspective. Interestingly enough, he does say it, but he also tells you how God brought him around. So for our benefit, we hear his doubt and, and trouble. And yet we hear the resolution too. And so I think what you have here is he's learning he can't trust himself to have it right. But in the context of worship among the people of God, under the word of God, before the face of God, he begins, he begins to stop pretending. It's all good. I'm great. Couldn't be better. Smile, smile, fake, fake. (laughs) He quits pretending and yet he's cautious not to destroy others in the midst of it. He he figures out that somebody else has it figured out even though he doesn't. And that someone is God. The second thing I think you see at verse 16 is this, he figures out he can't figure it out. In in other words, verse 15, he doesn't trust himself to have it right and now he, he figures out I I can't puzzle my way through it. When I tried to understand, it was wearisome, he says. It was a wearisome task when I tried. And and so I think he's saying, I still don't have all the answers, but, but it changed him to meet with God. It changed him to meet with God in worship. Worship reminds us of what is real. We are part of God's drama. And not the other way around. God isn't the part of our drama. We're the part of his drama. And I don't get all the answers we discover in worship, but I can live with that because God does have all the answers, and worship teaches him that. Worship is important. So he can't figure out, or he figures out, he can't figure it out. Thirdly, he learns that God is God's goodness to him. Notice verses 25, 26, and 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none on earth a desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look at verse 28. But for me it is good to be near God, and I have made the Lord God my refuge. You see, he still doesn't have all the answers, but he's learned that God is good to Israel and God is his good. Others, he realizes, may have the whole world. But there's nothing to be desired on this earth to be compared with God Himself. God is the blessing. That's the point here. And I want to say to you that's that's the point of the gospel. The gospel gets you God. We sometimes think of the gospel as getting us pardon and forgiveness, and it does, and it's wonderful sometimes crassly we think the gospel gets me a ticket to heaven so I can go there someday but the gospel does more than that it actually gets me for God and God for me so that I am his and he is mine and he loves me and I'm learning to love him and that matters more than all the money all the popularity all the gifts all the friendship all the fun that this world can offer to you So he learns that the nearness of God is his good, that God is his good. And finally, in the last place, he remembers that life is a pilgrimage. Verse 17, he says, I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall in ruin, he says. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, he says, O Lord, you despise them as phantoms. And and skip down to verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You see what he's he's remembering here, that there, there is an end of the wicked and there is an end of those who trust in the Lord. One is with God in the new heavens and the new earth with God and his people forever and the other he says is cast away and so I think what he's saying is this there is there isn't there is help for us amidst the problem of the evil of injustice in this life and that is this it's temporary it will not endure that doesn't explain God's purposes for it now That doesn't explain why this trouble at this time, at this moment in my life, there are mysteries we simply cannot know or do not know. But we know this, God is patient with sinners. God is long-suffering with those who thumbed their nose at Him and couldn't give a rip about Him and love all His gifts but not Him. God holds out his hands every day to them and says, will you not turn and find me to be your all in all? This is what God is like. God restrains himself from judgment while he permits evil doers to do evil in order that God might be gracious to all his people who will be brought safely home to himself. And one day he will set all things right. One day the end will come and all will give an account. And one day in his presence, we will see his providence was good. And his plan was best. You can believe in a God like this. Who went to the cross to spare you the evil of your own envy. Because he did not so cling to his prerogative. He did not think it robbery to be considered equal with God, but he delighted to step down out of glory into this world to embrace you. Let's pray.